0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 6, that's page number 841, if you're using one of the Bibles there on the seat in in front of you. Good to see you all again this week. Thankful to Caleb uh, for preaching last week. Excited to see... uh, what God's going to do here with Cornerstone is you're here. A couple weeks ago, we announced we had nominated both Caleb Costin and Isaac Tolliver to become elders here uh, with us and help bear the load of pastoring uh, here at Cornerstone. So we're really excited about that, just continuing to rejoice in all that God is doing here in our midst and our community groups. And so it was great to have him up here. I uh, wish he could be here to thank him personally. Carmen and Matt's grandfather died this week, so they're gone to uh, the funeral there. So just keep them in prayer. A lot of people, as uh, Jordan mentioned, are. Traveling or sick or other things for various reasons, but that's why Caleb's not here to be thanked in person. So we'll thank him next week, privately. We're going to read verses 45 to 56 here in Mark chapter 6, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 45. Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and more to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it. Were made well. You bow your heads in prayer, God. I feel like in many respects that coming to this passage this morning is reminiscent of Moses approaching the burning bush, your glory on display. And so, Father, while this ground that we stand and sit on this morning is certainly not holy ground, these words that we hold. Before us here are clearly holy words, and I pray that we will approach them with the reverent, the, the, the respectful heart which they so rightfully deserve. Lord, this is a passage that you have been convicting me on this week. I thank you for the truths that are on display here, and I pray, Lord, this morning that as I speak, that I will be able to make those truths clear to everyone who has gathered here this morning, may your spirit open our eyes to see. May our hearts not be hardened like the disciples' hearts, so that as we see this scene unfold before us, we will do the only thing that is right to do and just fall to our knees and worship you. And so we give you this time, give you this pathetic attempt at, at making your truth clear. Father, I just pray that your truth will be the thing that is most prominent this morning, and nothing else. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well two weeks ago, I began our time together by making there we go by making the following statement. I said that our text this morning this was two weeks ago, I said, our text this morning as well as the one after it is one of those passages in the Bible that even unbelievers know fairly well. And I was referring with that statement to the scene that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago there in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, which we know as the story of of Jesus feeding the 5,000, a very well-known scene. All of us, if we have grown up in church at all, and even if you haven't, are probably familiar with that scene, that story, to some extent or another, as well as the scene which we're going to be looking at today here in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56, which we know is the story of Jesus walking on water. And I think if you were to ask people to make a list of their top 10 gospel scenes, like scenes that they remember from the gospels, I think both of those would probably be in a lot of people's lists. However, despite how familiar they are to many of us, the thing I was questioning two weeks ago, and I would equally question it this morning, is how much we really understand either of these stories. And when you stop and think about them, what do you really know about either of them? I, this was the question I posed to you a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I began by asking you, well, what's the point? Okay, if I asked you right now to explain to me and to everyone around you what the point of the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 uh, is, what what would you say? What is it that you're supposed to learn? What is it that Mark and all the other gospel writers, a fact that is lost on us that all of them find that story significant. What is it that they all wanted us to see? And my assumption was in asking that question that many of us would probably answer it with some form of the answer that Jesus is powerful, meaning that maybe he can do miracles or that he can do anything. He's, he's amazing, yes, I, we get that. Except that that answer doesn't make any sense because Mark has already made that super clear. I mean, if by this point in Mark's gospel, you're not clear on the fact that Jesus is powerful because he can you know, cast out demons and he can heal the sick and he can calm the winds and the seas with a word, he can raise the dead. If you're not clear on Jesus's power by this point, if you don't believe it by now, I don't think that him feeding 5,000 people is really going to make much of a difference. I mean, how, what, how does that even compare to raising someone from the dead? So I don't think that that is the point at all. And so I, I asked again the question, well, then what is the point? What, what is it that he wants us to see? And to answer that question, I said that you needed to do two things. First, you needed to remember the larger context of, and where the story appears. From Mark chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 15, Mark is trying to show us that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is unlike any other man in that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is going to come in fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises and prophecies to rescue God's people and usher in a new covenant for the children of God. That's that's what this entire section is doing from Mark 6 all the way through the end of Mark 15. He's trying to drive home this idea that Jesus is the Christ. And you've got to keep that in mind as you come to that story. Second, you need to read that story with an Old Testament perspective in mind. Do you remember that? that? That was kind of, I think, the big thing for me. In all my years of reading the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, I had never read it like that where I was really trying to think about how this story was showing me connections back to the Old Testament. And and, and I said to you, I use this this wording here, that the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is just dripping with Old Testament imagery. I mean, every time you turn around in the story, you're running into something there. And so just think back over the story for a moment. I want to review it just real quick because it's important for today. But, But there's Jesus and the disciples in a boat right heading off to a quiet place to rest because they had just come off some ministry and they needed to get away. So they're going to this desolate place, this wilderness, by themselves. And when they get there, are they alone? No, because great crowds, Mark tells us, he emphasizes that great crowds have gathered to meet them. And rather than being aggravated by this, Jesus has compassion on them and he sees them as what? Do you remember? As being sheep without a shepherd. And I told you to note that phrase because that phrase was very important. And so he First thing he does is he gives them the words of God there in the wilderness. He teaches them. But after a while, it's late, and the disciples want to send the people away to get food. Jesus has another plan. He takes five loaves and two fishes. He blesses them. He breaks them, and he gives them to the crowd. They all eat. They're all satisfied. There's so much food left over that they take up 12 baskets of leftover. And that's the story, and we're all like, yay. So what? (laughs) But if we read that same story with that Old Testament perspective in mind, you instantly, instantly see the significance of what's going on here. Because this story is meant to remind us of things that occurred with two of the greatest characters in the Old Testament, particularly in the minds of the the Jewish audience of Jesus' day. It's meant to remind you of Moses. The great deliverer, the the one who brings God's words to the people there on Sinai. It's meant to remind you of him, and it's meant to remind you of Elijah, the, the greatest of all the prophets who called God's people back to faithfulness in the Old Testament, both of these men were associated with the Messiah in the minds of of the people of jesus day, and so they 're expecting this great leader like Moses to arise up from amongst the people to lead them in deliverance from rome they 're expecting someone like Elijah to come and prepare the way both of these characters are on their minds and when you step back then with that understanding and look at the scene again, you see the connections to both of these guys because Like in the story of Moses, Jesus looked with compassion on the multitudes of Israel, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That's a direct quote from Numbers 27. Like in the story of Moses, the first thing that Jesus gave them in the wilderness was the words of God. Like Moses, in the story, the crowds are miraculously fed bread and meat in the wilderness. All of these things. You see, you see similar things happening with the story of Elijah and his servant, Elisha, with him. That God provides food miraculously for Elijah and the widow. It just keeps appearing and occurring day after day. Elisha has a similar incident in 2 Kings 4 where he provides food for servants and there's so much left. They take up leftovers afterwards. But here's the point. Whereas Moses and Elijah were merely conduits of God's message, Jesus was the source. Whereas Moses and Elijah have to pray to God to provide food for the people, for the, the people they're interacting with, Jesus provides it himself. And if you were there that day with the multitudes in the wilderness, being taught the words of God, being fed by the hand of God, you would have recognized that what happened with Moses and what happened with Elijah it's happening again, except this time, better, because someone greater than Moses, someone greater than Elijah is here. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one of God come to rescue God's people and bring the new covenant to the children of God. This is, this is him. Do You remember all that? Okay, that was last, no, last Sunday, two Sundays ago and yet there's more. Actually, there's a lot more. Because having shown us in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that someone greater than Moses and greater than Elijah is here, Mark now wants to take us even deeper into who this Messiah really is. And so he moves us seamlessly into the story of Jesus walking on water, as we think of it. And I want to approach this story the same way I approached our story last week, by taking an initial walkthrough, just at the surface level, to make sure we understand what's going on here within the story. And then when we're finished that, we're going to come back and do it again again but this time at a deeper level so that I can try to highlight what I think Mark is doing here in the scene. And so let's begin that first walk through here in verse 45 by noting that Mark tells us here that as soon as they had taken up the baskets of leftovers, that immediately Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Beseda, while he dismisses the crowds. And as you read this, you really get the sense that Jesus he's rushing them out of the situation, right? Like, he doesn't really want them to be there. He's like, guys, get in the boat and go now. And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that many commentators believe that the reason for this is because that the crowd that had gathered there to hear him, that he had fed just prior to this, may have gathered in the wilderness for reasons other than just to hear his teaching, right? Like, they may be there, probably are there, either by force or, or by strong suggestion, to ask him to make him become their king. This might be a revolution beginning on this particular day, and the clues for this are hidden in plain sight throughout the text if you look for it, particularly as you put together the four accounts from the four gospels. For example, all four gospel writers emphasize what? That it's the number of men, not just the number of people, the number of men, of of potential soldiers would be the idea here. They, when they sit down on the, on the ground, they sit in regimental sized groups, 50s and 100s. Remember that? Clearly, something's up. And that something is made clear by John in John chapter 6 when he tells us that at the end of this episode, the people wanted to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. This is that, the, as they see and hear the teachings, they see uh, his miraculous works, they're thinking, this is the guy. This is the one who can lead us in a revolt against Rome unlike anyone else before. This is him. And that would have fit very well with their understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to do, an understanding that was, unfortunately for them, wrong. The crowd, I think, probably wants to start an insurrection against Rome here at the end of the scene. And I, I think the commentators are right in assuming that that is the reason why Jesus wants to get them out of there so quickly. He wants to move them out of there as fast as he can, and so he puts them on the boats, he quickly sends them away while he dismissed the crowd. I would have loved to have heard that conversation. And having done that, Mark tells us, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And and, and it's interesting, Jesus only prays alone three times in Mark, three times. And each of the times he does it, it occurs at a moment where there's like a temptation or a situation that might... Take him off the path of what God has sent him to earth to do. In Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 35, he did this after his first day of public ministry in Capernaum. Remember that? That was the day he, he cast out a demon in the synagogue. He goes home. He, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. A whole bunch of people gather that evening. He's healing. He's casting out demons. It's an amazing event. The next morning, he gets up early, and he goes out to pray. And the people are looking for him. And, and Mark is looking for Jesus, ever a good thing? no. And Mark, every time you see that word used, it's always negative. There's something going on. And you get the sense there in Mark 1 that the people of Capernaum want him to stay in Capernaum and be their own little pet. Like, you're going to stay here and you're going to heal our diseases and take care of stuff and this will be great. And, and that'd be an easy life for Jesus, wouldn't it? Stay home all the time, no travel, you know, work out of his house, just do stuff. That would be, that'd be a great life. But what's his response to the, to the disciples there in Mark 1? No, I have to go out and reach the other towns also. He's not going to be diverted from his mission. He's going to go. You see it again here in Mark 6. He does this same thing, goes off in prays after this attempt to make him king. The people want him to be their leader, to, to overthrow Rome he certainly is their leader, and he certainly is a king, but not like this. Not like they wanted at that particular moment, and so this would have pulled him off of God's path. He prays, he sends the people away, and he goes back to the disciples. He doesn't go with where they want him to go, and the third time you see Jesus praying, in Mark is in Mark 14, verses 32 to 42, where he prays there in the garden of Gethsemane, and in that prayer, what does he pray? Lord, let this cup, let this cup pass from me, if there was any way other than the cross that we could accomplish this. Let this, let this cut pass. Nevertheless, not your will, but mine. Again, this internal desire or 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 feeling that he doesn't want to go this path, but he is willing to do it. You see it there in each case when you see Jesus go off alone to pray in Mark specifically. It's always connected to some situation or temptation. You could say that it would divert him from God's plans for him on this earth. And in each case, he prays and then he obeys what God has sent him to do. And so Jesus goes up to pray. And when evening comes, the boat is out at sea and he's alone on the land. Mark is simply uh, emphasizing the setting both for the disciples and Jesus. It's late. It's probably near midnight. You'll see why I think that in a moment. The disciples are in the boat at sea. Jesus is either up on the mountain or he's coming down from the mountain and he sees that they're making headway painfully, Mark says, for the wind was against them. And this just means that they're having a, a really hard time rowing against the the wind and waves. Okay, this is not like the last time when they're in the boat and the storm is so bad that they think they're going to die and they're waking Jesus up with saying, don't you care about us? It's, it's not that. This time they're fine. It's just they're trying to go this way and the wind's blowing them that way kind of a situation. Like, they can't get to where they want to go easily. They're having this difficulty. That's what Mark's referring to here. And Jesus sees this and Mark tells us that about the fourth watch of the night, he comes to them walking on the sea. I'll pause and just make a couple of quick notes here. First, the time. The fourth watch of the night is a Roman way of referring to time. Mark is familiar with both Jewish and Roman culture, and so he refers to it in the Roman sense, because the Romans divided the night into four watches for their guards. So if you've got the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. our time. So this is early, early morning that this scene is unfolding here, right around dawn, okay, right around dusk, or yeah, dawn is morning, dusk is night. Right around dawn, can't remember. And so I'm assuming that this is why they got in the boat around midnight because it was already late when he fed them. That's what the disciples said. It's late. You send them away so they can get some food. Jesus feeds them himself. That took some time. He he then sends the disciples away. He then has to dismiss the the crowds. He had time to pray. All of that is occurring before 3 a.m. here. And now sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus comes to them on the sea, which is the second thing I want to note. And it's kind of obvious that He's walking on water. Okay. Just, it's so familiar for us to use that phrase. We even use it like colloquially colloquially, to to refer to someone being perfect. Just think about that for a moment. He's walking on water. Like, do you really believe that? I'll tell you what I would say to you. Um, I would rather you completely deny that or completely believe it. I don't really think there's a spot in the middle. But people try to make one, like some people will say, well, he's really walking on a sandbar in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Or he's really walking on the, on the coastline, but the surf is up and they can't see well. You're telling me that trained fishermen and sailors, not just generally trained, right? They are specific to this sea. It's not that big. <laughs> that guys who know this water, they live next to it, they're fishermen, this is their occupation, that they don't know the difference between the the shore in the middle of the the water? They don't know where sandbars are, so if they see Jesus walking on it. like Again, my, my point isn't really to argue that. I'm just saying it would be better for you to outright deny this and say this is all a lie or to accept it and say it's all true. There's no middle ground here, and I want you to see that and understand it because whether you believe it or not, Mark is telling us now that Jesus is walking on water. And hold that thought and notice the next sentence. He meant to pass by them And they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost, a phantasm, literally. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And I want you to note two phrases, because these are the most critical phrases in this entire story. Number one, he meant to pass by them. If you underline your Bible, that's the one to underline. Because I want to stop and ask a question now that I won't answer for a few minutes, but I want you to start thinking about it. Why? Like, Why would he pass by them? I mean, is he trying to race them even though they don't know it? Like I did that in college once when I was giving blood. They had like a blood drive and I went and sat down next to a guy I didn't know who he was and his bag has already started. I'm like, I can beat him. <laughs> and I start pumping and I almost passed out. Like, <laughs> is Jesus doing something like that now with them? He's like racing them when they don't know it. Or, or, or is it maybe that he's trying not to be seen by them? Is he trying to be sneaky and get past them in such a way that they don't notice him? Well, if that's the case, he fails because Mark says they do see him and they think he's a ghost, a phantasm. Okay? They, these are trained fishermen out of the water. They've probably seen a lot of weird stuff at night. They see this, and they're like, it's a ghost. Like, who are you going to call, right? So so they're all crying out, Mark tells us, because they all saw him. They're all terrified. Mark is the only one of the gospel writers to include this comment that he meant to pass by them. And so my question is simply, why? Hold on. We'll come back to that. Number two, I want you to underline Jesus' words to them. Because immediately when he sees their terrors, or hears their terrors, they're crying out, he speaks to them and he says, take heart, it is I, that's your phrase, do not be afraid. He he identifies himself to them. And after identifying himself to them, He gets into the boat and the wind instantly ceases and the disciples go from terror to astonishment. And Mark tells us that the reason for their astonishment is because they didn't understand about the loaves. There's something that happened in that last scene that they didn't get. And because they didn't get it there, they're not understanding now. Okay, you, you, you see what he's doing here? They didn't understand about the loaves. And so that inability to understand the current situation is based on the past. Instead, Mark tells us their hearts are hardened. That doesn't mean they're somehow now against Jesus. It just, he's just explaining why they can't see. They can't see what's plain before their eyes. Their mind can't comprehend it because something's wrong in their heart. And so Mark ends this scene by noting that when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and more to the shore no, they didn't end up where they originally set off to sail to. They were going to Bethsaida, the ended of Gennesaret, and I think you see in that what the wind and waves had done. It pushed them off course, and so they, they land here. Instantly, Jesus is recognized. Ministry begins again. Mark says that the people ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. They implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. No, Mark doesn't give any specifics in that ending there. I think he sometimes just wants to do this because he's the shortest of the gospel writers, and he's like, look, I know a lot more stuff happened. Here you go, boom, a lot of stuff happened. Okay, but let's get back to the point. Now, that's the story, got it? And now that you understand those surface details, can we walk back through that a second time and go a little bit deeper? Because just like with the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, if you were one of Mark's original Jewish readers who was reading or listening to this story being read to you for the first time, I think you would instantly recognize the significance of the setting, the words, and the events that have just transpired before you in the story. Think about the setting. Where where are the disciples? Where? On the sea, okay? Specifically on a stormy sea, right? They're on the waves and On these waves, Jesus comes to them walking on the waves. And I would stop to ask you to consider the question again, why? Like, why does he come to them walking on water? Weren't there other ways he could have gotten to them? Like, for example, uh, couldn't he, since he saw them from afar anyway, couldn't he have just, like, calmed the sea from a distance and then walked around on land and just met them on the other side? Or or, uh, maybe, why didn't he just appear in the boat? Just like, poof, hey guys, I'm here. Or why didn't he just appear on the other side and let them finish fighting it out? He knew where they'd land anyway. He could have just been there that way. Or even better, why doesn't he just like poof the boat out of the water and bring them back to him? I'm just pointing out that there are lots of things that Jesus could have done to come together with the disciples again. So why specifically did he choose to come to them by walking on the waves? Well, if we knew the Old Testament better, we would instantly recognize that that imagery is commonly used to refer to Yahweh himself. Okay, and, and if you're not familiar with the word Yahweh, that's God's name, it means I am. Okay, When he appears to Moses that day in the burning bush, and Moses asks for his name, he says, I am, tell the people of Israel that I am, that Yahweh has sent you. And so you see this imagery used to describe Yahweh commonly in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, just as one example, Job describes God as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isaiah describes God as making a path upon the seas in chapter 43, 51. Psalmist does it in Psalm 77. Habakkuk does it in chapter 3 you just start reading your Old Testament, and one of the common things you're going to see God described with is his ability to tread upon the waters, to make his path through the waters. Hold that thought for a moment. Think next about that comment that Jesus meant to pass by them, right? Because that's really unusual. I pointed that out, and I was asking the question, why? Why would he do that? Well, the fact that we ask that question, I think, shows again We don't really know our Old Testaments. Because if we knew the Old Testament, well, I think instantly we would recognize that that very phrase is used two other times in the Old Testament with two specific characters. Does anyone want to take a guess who? Moses and Elijah? Oh my, wow, that's amazing again, right? Mark's just doing this like, weird stuff. It just keeps happening to work out. Moses and Elijah are the two characters where, again, in the Old Testament, you see God use, or the, the Old Testament writers use this phrase. In Exodus 33:19. 19, we read, and he said, this is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you, saying to Moses, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and pause. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in your Bibles, that is our English translators trying to show you that this is God's name, okay? It's not just like they misprinted and, no, this is Yahweh, that is my name, my name Yahweh, I am, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, For man shall not see me and live, and I am said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Next chapter, verse 5, I am descended in the cloud. And he stood with him there with Moses and he proclaimed the name of I am. I am passed before him and proclaimed, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, because that's what you do when I am passes before you. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah, exhausted and discouraged with his fight with Jezebel and Ahab, he's gone to hide in a cave. And God comes to him and he says, why are you in the cave? why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I'm the only one left of the people who honor God. My enemies are trying to kill me. And so in verse 11, God speaks. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before I am. And behold, I am passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broken pieces the rocks before I am. But I am was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but I am, was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but I am, was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, that was the voice of God speaking to Elijah. You see, if we were familiar with those Old Testament passages... If we had a better way or in our hearts and minds of putting together this larger story of Scripture, when we would have read that story of Jesus walking on the water, we would have instantly recognized that that phrase that he meant to pass by them is the same one used of Moses and Elijah here in the Old Testament. Now hold that for a moment and add one final piece. Consider now Jesus' words to them here in verse 50, when he says to them, It is I. You want to hear a literal translation of that from the Greek? Take heart. I, I am. Do not be afraid. Now, when you put those three things together, what do you have? Who alone can trample the seas? Who? God. God. Who alone in grace and mercy chooses to reveal himself to man? Not because man necessarily wants it or is seeking it, but because God wants to reveal himself. Who does that? God. And and who alone can declare himself to be the great I am? Only God. What Mark is showing us here is that this one who could feed the multitudes in the wilderness by his own hands, who could speak with power and authority from his own lips, that the one who was greater than Moses, who was better than Elijah, that the one who has come to bring a greater deliverance and call us to a new covenant, he's none other than Yahweh himself come in flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's awesome. It was better even than the disciples or the people of Israel thought. They were expecting a great prophet. But it was God in flesh come to deliver them this time. And as I read this story, I was reminded over and over again of how some things have changed and some things stayed the same, right? Because, because before, you know, it was really unusual for God to pass by and reveal himself to man, and now he reveals himself to all. He reveals himself to all in the living word, his son Jesus, and in the written word, the scriptures. Whereas before to look upon God's face meant death, now to look upon his face means life, life forever through his son. And yet some things are unchanged because when we look upon the face of Jesus, we find he's still a God that's merciful and Gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin for all who believe in his son. As you walk out of here today, what I want you to be struck by is two things. One, that we serve a God who chooses in grace to reveal himself to us. You don't know God because you sought him. You have no relationship with him because you did anything. The God we serve, the God we worship, the God we believe in, in grace and mercy, takes the initiative to reveal himself to us. We're not worthy of that. Moses wasn't worthy of that. Elijah wasn't worthy of that. The disciples sure weren't worthy of that. Their hearts are hardened as they look upon it. They can't understand any of the things that have happened. And yet Jesus still, in grace, reveals himself to them, declaring that he is the great I am of creation. Secondly, you should just fall down on your knees and worship. There's no other response. I mean, he's God. He's Yahweh. He's the one who was so holy, Moses couldn't look upon him. He's the one who Moses had to take his shoes off because he was on a holy ground. That same God of the Old Testament, now in the person of Jesus before them. It drives us to our knees, remembering this man, Jesus, he's no ordinary man. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the promised one. He is Yahweh himself. You bow your heads. Jesus, we just come now and worship you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, for, for coming and ex- And showing us your beauty and your glory and the truth of who you are. We're not worthy. We haven't come looking for you. You have taken all the initiative upon yourself. You have since the beginning of time. In your great plan for this world, you have desired that we know you. Too often, Lord, we get caught up in this, this thing that we We have to know you, but it is a greater joy to know that you want us to know you. Like, just that truth alone should send us to our knees in worship. So thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us. Thank you for desiring a relationship with us. Thank you for humbling yourself and sending your Son to come and make that possible. It wasn't a man that Israel needed to come deliver them. It was you. And just like then, Lord, now today, there's no deliverance we need apart from you. And so I pray, Father, that for each and every person in this room, if their faith has been placed in any other person, any other thing, that they will see the futility of that and place all their hope in you because you alone are the deliverer, the Savior, the promised Messiah. I pray, Lord, that for all of us, that our hearts will just be brought down low, humble before you, recognizing, Jesus, that you are God eternal. You are our great God, and all of our praise and all of our worship rightly belongs to you. And so, Father, we come now with quiet hearts and humble hearts before you, thanking you, praising you for all that you have done. Help us to praise you and know you more, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.